Vaheguru Ji Ka Khalsa, Vaheguru Ji Ki Fateh. Welcome to another episode of the Sacred Renaissance. We are very humbled to announce that our listeners are daily growing and so is our outreach. As always, we will continue in our endeavors to bring to you quality content free of cost. Now, we have all heard of Udham Singh. That shadowy figure whose pictorial appearance alternates between turban seek and bowler hat wearing gun wielding angel of vengeance. Vengeance, however, is a light him in the context of why Udham Singh did what he ultimately did. Before getting into the gist of his story, let me remind the listeners that there are two perspectives on history. The foremost is the secular, which is we're accidentally intelligent and create history on the compulsion of the times. The second is the providential, and this is the Sikh perspective, I believe. We are beings of destiny, specially fashioned to transcend our seeming mental and physical barriers while altering the times with us. The first perspective subscribes to the notion that history is a study of the factors which shape us. The second perspective, though, emphasizes that history is a study of the factors which we bring into being. The tale of Udham Singh can only be comprehended if we accept the second perspective. The first does injustice to our intelligence. The second contrastingly celebrates it and serves to remind us of the vice and virtue which either precedes us or succeeds us as we tread the path towards realizing our collective destiny as humans. Vice, virtue, morality and immorality, these all hinge on us. Gurbani avows Jo Mange Takurapanete Soi Soi Devi. What this means is that whatever we request from our Maker, we receive. Whether it is good or bad depends on us. But alongside is a kavit. What we ask for, we receive, but alongside we reap the consequences. Whether those consequences are good or bad depends on us and our intent in demanding in the first place. Now, all Udham Singh desired was a normal life when he was younger. As normal as could be for someone in his circumstances. He was born as Sher Singh in late 1899, the second son of a low caste Cambodge Sikh couple. I mention his caste not to digress but to contextualize what I say next. His parents were no strangers to poverty, but neither did their contemporary society let up in persecuting them for their caste. By the time the British annexed the Punjab in the mid-1800s, caste and Pujari Vadi Soch had permeated the Sikh social fabric to the extent that it had mitigated, nearly nullified the equality seated by the Gurus within the Khalsa. And the irony here was that Udham's parents were Sikhs but never afforded the equality and liberty which the faith's founding fathers had emphasized. Depression and poverty combined with disease afflicted his mother to the extent that she gave up the will to live and died. Udham's father, Udham, and his elder brother then adopted an itinerant lifestyle. That was before his father also succumbed to life's travails and died. The boys were finally picked up where they were standing by their father's body and transported to the Khalsa orphanage Amritsar, where they received a new lease on life and new names. Sher became Udham. There they requested initiation into the Khalsa after witnessing the Sikh conduct of their newfound friends and teachers. And then one more tragedy which finally ripped, ripped Udham's heart from him. His brother died. The shock proved traumatic for him. So traumatic in fact that for the rest of his life he became an introvert, retreating far within himself. 
but this was no compulsive retreat which hardened him against the world. It inured him to pain. It inured him to trials and tribulations. But it also opened his heart to the less fortunate. This was no cold-hearted, craven-minded individual who forfeited his humanity at the altar of tragedy. This was an emphatic man who in the best tradition of his Sikh influences emerged as a warrior. A voice for the voiceless. He angled them upon the cusp of manhood, then took another turn in his life. He became a carpenter. Working with timber and surrounded by the sounds of hammering and saws afforded him the introverted isolation he so desired. His work as a carpenter became his period of contemplation, of reflection, and of meditation on whatever in whichever direction his mind took. Prospects were grim though. The British Empire had sucked the Indian subcontinent dry. Udham's own forefathers had been farming labourers, but they had been starved into poverty and death. Carpenters were in demand, but remuneration was pathetic for the times, and competition permitted the construction market. Observing no other choices, Udham entered the British Indian Army on the eve of World War I. Now, no doubt his passion for war was ignited by the vocal fervour of Michael O'Dwyer, Punjab's then Lieutenant Governor, who was also an Irish imperialist, and who was considered the epitome of colonial nuance on the subcontinent. O'Dwyer promised the world and beyond to seek youth to become cannon fodder for empire. He drew picturesque landscapes with his words of arable land in India and abroad with which to reward soldiers with post-war. For the young and somewhat gullible Udham, all these rewards meant independence and life. A chance to get away from his past, to escape Amritsar and its memories. He instantly signed up for war. Fitted out in his military uniform, trooper Udham Singh was dispatched to battle in Mesopotamia. Yet the white man's ways were not the Sikh's way so far as rank and file was concerned. From day one, Udham was harassed by his military officers. But rather than be subdued, he gave vent to an innate rebellious nature and was let go from military service. He returned home dejected but inspired. His ears had picked up tunes of mutiny, of rebellion against the British. This was the ear of Gadri Babbe, of the tail end of the Singh Sabha Lahore, with its emphasis on Sikh valor, of young Sikh men and women huddled in corners whispering about the restoration of Khal Saraj, and of course, of the disaffected Sikh soldiery which returned from World War I only to find out that O'Dwyer had lied to them all along. The British as individuals are not bad with them decided. They had after all brought progression to the subcontinent and beyond. But their political masters were the personification of evil. The subcontinent had to be liberated before the subcontinent could decide whether to divide itself on religious lines. Penniless but resourceful, Udham now oriented his energies towards battling the British and was recruited by Ghadar. These were early days. Udham was yet to be given a gun by his newfound employer. To test his ability, senior Ghadarites made him a runner. He would run to and fro distributing anti-imperial pamphlets. And it was in this vein that he ended up in Jaliawala Bagh on the fateful day of 13th April 1919. It was the day of Vaisakhi, the day when almost three centuries prior Guru Gobind Singh had challenged Sikh Dom to arise to the occasion and organize itself in the fraternity in the society of Guru Nanak's vision. 
but this Vaisakhi was marred. Incidents had transpired and violence broken out. Whites had been targeted and then been saved by Indians. But this last fact was ignored by O'Dwyer in his citadel at Lahore. A vicious curfew was clamped. Over a thousand protesters gathered in Jaliawala to protest what was a one-sided breach of civil liberties by the authorities. The British decided to be fawned upon but never criticised, least of all by their subjects who they considered below them. O'Dwyer dispatched Brigadier General Reginald Rex Dyer to teach the protesters and through them the Empire's colonies a lesson. And Dyer carried out his orders with precision. His troops blockaded all access at Egra's points to the bug and then opened a ruthless fire upon civilians of all hues. Hundreds were mowed down as wave after bloody wave of ammunition tore through them. The butchery was so precise that even a nearby well was filled with corpses after soldiers marched to it to slay any survivors therein. A thousand and more were killed. Dyer marched out as evening fell. It was a red sunset, and the ensuing silence, the silence of death, cries rent the air as survivors searched for their loved ones. Punjab had witnessed such chaotic scenes before. The earth of Punjab was drenched with the blood of 12,000 Sikhs who had perished at the hands of Lakhpatarai in 1746. Then the almost 15,000 and more who had perished at the hands of Durrani in 1762. And now that dried blood received a fresh infusion of more red blood at the hands of O'Dwyer. Now make note here, O'Dwyer asked for the ability to strike fear in the hearts of those under him from providence. But the fruit this act would bring him would extinguish him before his time. As a woman attempted to lift her injured husband onto a cart within the bog, a young Sikh drenched in blood ran to her aid. Having hidden under the mountain corpses, a sheikh in Udham helped her cart away her husband, and then he ran to the orphanage. He cried his heart out. Whatever shred of forgiveness he held for the British was now torn out. This would be further confirmed by the ruthless suppression of dissent in the ensuing few days after the Jaliawala massacre and the arbitrary persecution of all individuals protesting for justice. O'Dwyer went so far as to utilize aeroplanes to fire upon protesters marching from Lahore demanding justice for what had happened in Amritsar. Injustice? What of it? Justice would prove evasive. Dyer was recalled to Britain and demoted, but never officially penalised. His transgression was deemed minor when compared to what was said to be an impeccable service record. However, discordant voices would harass him throughout his life and the man would die as a former shadow of, him, of himself. Aver he had asked for the wrong element, the element of fear from providence, and had consecutively reaped the consequences of his want. What finished him off was the unfailing knowledge that the time to atone was long past for what he had done. By no means something which deserved atonement in the first place. His sin was too horrendous. Providence finished off dire and not the hand of men. Men from among whom a certain section had been gunned down because their faith, their society, their politics, and their vision was different to what Dyer's employees believed to be the status quo. As for O'Dwyer, his retirement saw him ascend the peak of popularity in Europe and at home in Britain. During his adolescence, he had witnessed Irish anti-imperialists murder his pro-imperialistic father. 
and this had spawned his opposition to all forms of anti-imperialism. And it also allowed him to exploit the Jallianwala as his attempt or his success at curbing anti Indian anti-imperialism actually. After all, the age expected anti-imperialism to be classed as a sin and by protesting orders derived from royal writ, which allowed its minions to rule over India, the protesters at Jallianwala in British eyes had directly challenged their na island nation's imperial majesty. On the other hand, traumatized, Udham Singh nonetheless continued with life. But within him now bent a zeal to punish the British for what they had done. He stepped up his activities in Gadar but soon realized that he needed to travel to Canada and the United States if he were to rise in its ranks and fulfill his mission of punishing the British for Jallianwala by slaying its foremost culprit, Michael O'Dwyer. Thus began his two-decade-long mission of retribution, a mission he commenced in the best spirit of Sikh warriors by swearing to Providence that even if it cost him his life, he would kill O'Dwyer. Now this brings us to another interesting point. Udham Singh was an initiated Sikh. But the rise of Santwad and Pujari thought in Sikhi served to alienate him from the faith of his forefathers. Nor was his theological comprehension of the Sikh ethos that prescient that he could comprehend why pain existed in the world. But his entire life he respected the Gurus though he occasionally expressed confusion as to how they emerged as legendary leaders in their own right if they solely believed in worldly renunciation. Now, of course, the latter is a concept opposed to Sikhi, but the Pujari clique has misappropriated it from the so-called Tarmik quagmire and obfuscated it with Sikhi. Out of compulsion, Udham Singh discarded his Sikh identity for a more Europeanized look, something which he would keep until his dying day. In the context of his thoughts, I cannot say what went through his mind the exact moment he took this decision. However, this was not out of a desire to divorce himself from Sikhi, but rather from a disconnect with the salient comprehension of his faith. After overcoming multiple huddles, Udham finally reached the much-coveted United States. It was here that he became solidified as an anti-imperialist militant, proving himself a dead shot with the gun he also entered into cohorts with Irish and Italian revolutionaries. Empire was at war with itself. But far from being the land of liberty, the United States proved to be in the British corner. Prior to Udham's arrival, we had the example of Meva Singh in 1914 who shot dead Hopkinson in Canada. This was in retaliation to Hopkinson arranging the arbitrary slaying of prominent Sikh activists in the contemporary Canadian Sikh community. And also against immigration laws. Arbitrary and overnight changes to immigration regulations and the deliberate refusal to recognize subcontinental marriages had alienated the subcontinental community from the Canadian mainstream. And of course, this was an era where social Darwinism and racism was at its political peak. Now, regarding the marriage refusal, this last point, it must be mentioned is now also an issue in current times in New Zealand where the immigration stubbornly refuses to acknowledge the validity of Indian cultural marriages. Anyhow, the American authorities stepped up to their game to detain anti-imperialists of Punjabi slash Sikh origin. Their foremost targets were conspicuous Sikhs, Muslims, and lower caste Hindus. 
Now it seems that two of them had digressed from his mission. He had virtually gone off the radar, so to speak. Obviously, he had multiple allies, Frank Brazil, Ram Mohammed, Singazad, and countless others. Now, I will clarify here that nothing from Udam's life substantiates the myth that Ram Mohammed Singazad was some symbol of his nationalism. Whether it was an alias he fabricated given that Ram, Mohammed, Singh, and Azad were prominent names in the diaspora and did not raise much suspicion at borders. By this point in life, it must be remembered, he was a sworn atheist and took great joy in cajoling the most religious of Hindus and Muslims in debates where he would minutely destroy them. But, but, what had convinced him, such a strong disciplined personality, to digress from slaying Odwyer? The reason was a woman. Her name was Lupe, and she would later die in a home for the elderly. But during her youth, she was Udum, Udum's wife for a while. From the few records we have, it seems the marriage was a happy marriage and there were also children. Odom worked as a mechanic, settling in well in the United States. Though his inquisitive spirit and association with Gadar saw them move from state to state until he settled upon Long Island in New York. But then something happened. What the something was, we do not know. In my mind, Odom had never forgotten his original mission, though he had shelved it for the time being. Life took an inexorable turn. Was he recognized or did the authorities learn about him? Whatever the matter, Udham vanished from the United States and from the lives of his wife and children, never to see them again. His next appearance is aboard a ship sailing to India. He claims he is Puerto Rican, refuses to speak English, and keeps to himself though he is employed as the ship's carpenter and has a team under him. He lands at a secondary port after the main port reserved for travelers landing in India. He then travels to the Punjab. But this is Udham Singh we must remember. He is a veteran Gujarat now. He has undertaken COVID missions for his organization and is not bereft of cash. Unwilling to draw attention to himself, he seeks residence at a local prostitute's quarters in Amritsar, out of all the places he could have hidden it. This is 1927 Punjab. The Kali wave is in full swing. Only a year prior, the Babarakalis have been brought to reign by British authorities. And despite their efforts, Ratan Singh Babarakali continues to evade their clutches and continues fighting through both pen and sword. The most dangerous militant group is still Gadar. So it's not surprising that Udham stay at the brothel and his access to easy cash, which he blows in frenzies of passion, elicit much suspicion in police circles, and he is soon arrested. When the police arrest Udham, they find seditious literature and weaponry within his bag. Unable to pin him down as to who he really is, officials subject him to heavy torture. Now, Udham Singh proved unwilling to break and stuck to his fabricated explanations. Finally, he was sentenced to five years rigorous imprisonment for possessing anti-imperial literature and unlicensed weaponry. For Udham, the silver lining in all this was that at least he had never been identified as a veteran Gadarite. Jail proved an experience for him. Prisoners and officials soon enough learnt that he was a vicious fighter with his fists and only grew stronger under suppression. The spirit brought him a newfound friend, the legendary Pagd Singh. 
Now, Pug, Tsing was born into a Sikh family which had been misled by the Arya Smaj. Disgusted with religion in general and particularly the Smaj, Pug had renounced religion and become an atheist. He was a staunch opposer of Christianity, Hinduism and Islam. His prolific writings were full of polemical criticisms and rebuttals of religion in general. A committed atheist and Marxist, Pagth, however, was a keen admirer of the holy Sikh Babarakalis, even running the risk of imprisonment while reporting on their exploits. In none of his writings we find any criticism of Sikhi or the Sikh Gurus. Reason being that just like Udham, he was confused as to the faith's truth. These similarities and more so Pagth and Udham become inseparable companions. Despite the back-breaking labor which he had to endure while behind bars, Udham had many repasts. Foremost was his talks with Bhakt Singh which stretched into the early hours of dawn. Second was reading. This was a habit he picked up from Bhakt Singh and imprisoned Akalis. He became a particular fan of Sikh history, especially the exploits of warriors like Bhai Sukha Singh and Matab Singh. His zeal fired, his passion reawakened, he renewed his oath to slay Odwyer and court death if need be. In 1931, after insistence from Indian politicians, Bhagat Singh was hanged. In 1932, Udham Singh emerged from jail a free man. This is when Udham Singh entered the most critical phase of his life. Renewing connections with Gadar, he disappeared from India. We do not know where he went or how he got there, but we do have an inkling that he traveled throughout Europe and Russia. He trained hard and prepared accordingly. He routinely kept tabs on Odwire. Finally, finally, Udham Singh entered Britain under a false alias. Gadar was about to pull off its most audacious mission yet through him. What Udham was about to precipitate was a historical consequence. Nazi Germany was in the ascendant. Franklin Delino Roosevelt, meanwhile, was keeping a very surveillance on an irritable Japan. Italy was under the sway of Mussolini, a spirit of war plagued Europe. The only voice of forewarning was that of Winston Churchill, veteran commander Churchill, who was now daily confronting incumbent Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain on his appeasement policy. That is a policy which called for appeasing Hitler if war was not brought on Britain itself. Churchill was aware that the Nazis would never forgive Britain for being the chief architect of Germany's military demise in World War I, and their promises were false. He was keenly sympathetic with the Americans, even opening clandestine communication channels with them. All he required now was the Prime Ministry. Once again, history takes an inexorable turn. Had Churchill known what Udham was planning, he would have shot him dead. But on the other hand, fate was about to incentivize Churchill through Udham. Udham lived in Britain under multiple aliases, some knew him as Uday, others as Sher. He rented various residences throughout London and its vicinity. No one knew where he lived. What they did know was that he was more than the salesman he claimed to be. For one, he had a car and a motorcycle. Two, he had easy access to cash and gave out money to struggling Sikh immigrants without ever demanding payback. Yet, he was thrifty. Udham constantly took money from the donations box at Shepherd's Bush Gurdwara. One day the Granthi criticized him for this. Udham retaliated that the day was not far when he would give God an earful for compelling him to do what he was doing. That is, stealing from the Golok. 
While he proved a hit with London's seedy underbelly of wealthy but crackerless elitists, closet Marxists, prominent villain stars, even acting in some films as an extra, Udham was all the while laying down false tracks and collecting vital intelligence on Oidwire's movements. On the other hand, British intelligence is suddenly tipped off that there is a sense of palpable excitement among suspected Gadarites in the United Kingdom. And then suddenly, very suddenly, Udham applies for a visa to Germany under a false alias. Now the authorities are doubly suspicious and immigration officials, while refusing his application, start investigating him. Let us note that Germany by now is fully in the Nazi grip, Hitler is overlord, and Blitzkrieg has begun. Continental Europe is at war, while Britain adopts a policy of appeasement if Hitler does not attack it. Neville Chamberlain holds sway, but Udham is about to destroy his political career. However, as far as immigration is concerned, why would someone want to step into a war zone? And really, at this crucial stage, why did Udham attempt entry into Nazi Germany? Why would he run the risk of jeopardizing his very clandestine mission in Britain? We do not know. That is the truth. Like most facets from his life, even this one we do not know much about. All we can do is hazard a guess. But by no means was his desire to go to Germany a fancy whim. The most logical explanation we can hazard is that the Gadar nucleus decided to opt for two fronts in Britain. One which Udham would open by assassinating O'Dwyer and then escaping if possible, and another which would be opened by German infiltrators who would target colonialists. Irrespective of this plan's failure, Udham had nothing to worry about as he was soon forgotten. Subsequent intelligence leaks on all sides suddenly alarmed the British intelligence into awakening to the very possible threat of what it declared to be terrorism in London. It learnt of Udham's presence and then set off after him. But his countless false alliances, covers and false trials had almost 1,000 officials bumping into each other perplexed. Nonetheless, a picture was built up of an anti-imperial belligerent of Indian slash Punjabi origin, colloquially known as Sher, as Uday, as Ram, as Muhammad, or as Singh, and by various other names planning something highly noticeable, highly conspicuous within London itself. 13th March 1940 dawned. It is a cold dawn in Britain. On the streets of London, a man of subcontinental origin is seen loitering in various locations before heading for Caxton Hall. Wearing a long coat, a bowler hat and profusely smiling at everyone who passes him, he exudes a natural warmth in the cold weather. Then he enters Caxton Hall. A sentry posted at the doorstep greets him and Udham after a brief conversation with the man is allowed into the hall laughing. He is friendly and the predominantly white audience is infatuated with his jovial nature, believing him to be one of those rare Afghan or Indian admirers of the hall's keynote speaker that day, Sir Michael O'Dwyer. O'Dwyer does not disappoint. Now remember this is the very first time he is meeting Udham and Udham is meeting him. He curiously glances at Udham before ascending the stage to approach the podium. Now, when he reaches the podium, he rains down fire and brimstone upon the enemies of the empire, particularly the German madman Hitler. Udham is riveted all the while smiling. Now why is Udham smiling? Remember, this is not the smile of an admirer, but that of a lion stalking his prey. After several bouts of fist-thumping and tributes to social Darwinism, O'Dwyer ends his address to thunderous applause. 
The Hall's convener declares a break. The scene as it stands has Zoe Dwyer off the stage. Sir Louis Dane, Lawrence Dundens and Charles Cochran Bailey are on stage. Admirers are talking with O'Dwyer and laughing with him while Udham is approaching him from the rear. As they depart, O'Dwyer's guests notify him of Udham's approach and a laughing O'Dwyer tends to meet this curious man who has perplexed him from the onset. Udham draws up to him smiling, offers his hand to shake and then just as suddenly whips out a pistol and shoots him twice in the heart. O'Dwyer falls to the ground dead with Udham shooting the individuals on stage. They eventually survive. Near Caxton Hall, the gunshot sounds are loud and panic sets in, as Hitler attacked Britain within its impregnable heart, within mighty London itself. This is the question on every lip, on every face. Inside the hall, Udham surrenders after seeing the police have blockaded all exits. He himself is wrestled to the ground by multiple figures. Caxton Hall is locked off and finally after midnight its 1,200 trapped souls are released with pictures of a smiling Udham being led by the police, snapped by photographers to be printed on next day's newspapers. The world is petrified with shock on 14th March 1940. The British are aghast. Udham Singh has annihilated the myth of their invincibility by infiltrating their very own nation falling their very own security apparatus and shooting one of their very own formidable figureheads dead. On the other hand, Chamberlain's ham-handed approach to Hitler and the question of Nazi Germany at Britain's door is compounded by the assassination. Finally, he relents and is succeeded by Churchill as Prime Minister. History has inoxorably given to Churchill the Prime Ministership. He coveted the most through the hands of the man who he spites the most, the anarchist Udham Singh. Udham is repeatedly tortured to elicit who helped him and where they are based. He remains mum, to the point that his mental health starts to deteriorate. He proudly confesses to murdering O'Dwyer, and when Scotland Yard investigates further, it is thunderstruck at discovering his two-decade-long search to kill the retired governor. What a man it concedes. What a man indeed. So what is the reaction on the subcontinent? The common man is overjoyed, irrespective of caste and creed. Udham sect is interpreted in the light of Punjab's and particularly Sikhi's heroic history. He is, celebrating as, he is celebrated as having avenged a 21-year-old atrocity, but the political reaction naturally is cowardly. Gandhi sympathizes with Oidwai's family and castigates Udham as a madman. A similar reaction is found among the Muslim League. The Sikh Hokalis prove divided with the more militant celebrating him. As for Udham, he is past the point of caring. Nonetheless, Punjabi laborers succeed in hiring him a prominent defense lawyer, but this proves to be a poisoned chalice. While the less experienced barristers attempt to cast his motives as being those of a mentally traumatized victim of Jaliyawala, his foremost lawyer V.K. Krishna Menon imposes his own strategy on them. Menon is a congressite and Gandhian supporter. There is no love lost in his heart for Udham who he considers nothing more than an expendable criminal, his haughty manner and unfettered arrogance alienates him from Udham who decides to court death. Menon's attitude, I believe, was an extension of the political policy in India to court the British. Because while political parties subscribed noble motives to themselves, they were not above utilizing the British oppression to snuff out the competition, with the intent of being the last one left standing when the British eventually departed. The Kalis were seen as being fair game and while Udham was far from being an orthodox Sikh, 
His Sikh origins and the inspiration he received from Sikh history was enough to make him a danger if he became an Akali mascot. Now remember, similar was the case with Bhagat Singh and similar would be Udham's fate. Menon weakened Udham's defense to a considerable degree, something which even the judiciary commented upon. But Udham had no other recourse and proved uncaring. At times during his trial, most of the time was taken up by Menon and Udham going for each other's throats on how best to couch his statements in English. Finally, Udham was called to testify. He spoke in broken English, but his words proved bullet-like. Initially, he made the case solely about him and O'Dwyer, but witnessing Menon's chickenery and understanding the political forces at play, he suddenly turned around and claimed he did what he did for his motherland. This was to tear out the carpet from underneath the feet of those who he had realized were awaiting a transfer of power from the British and were not entrusted in the true liberation of the subcontinent. Outside the courts, the man who he had fired at after slaying O'Dwyer discovered the truth about him and why he killed O'Dwyer. They initiated a campaign to save him from the death sentence, believing this to be Menon's intent. But the judiciary was under pressure given that Udham had been typecast as the most hated man in Britain by the media. Finally, the judgment was handed down. Udham Singh was sentenced to death by hanging, a fate he happily accepted. On 31st July 1940, Udham Singh was hanged in Pentonville prison. His last moments were physically agonizing as the hangman proved inexperienced on the day. Nonetheless, he did not express any pain. He died the death he believed to be normal, that of a valorous warrior. But Udham did not die that day, to be honest. He was reborn. Reborn as a kindred spirit of revolutionaries warring against tyranny wherever and whenever. Reborn as a symbol of resistance against oppression. Reborn as a testament to the fact that whenever the shores of liberty are threatened by the dark waves of oppression, individuals with a moral sense of responsibility will forever arise to visit retribution upon the captains of sin. Today, Udham is no more remembered. In the 70s, his ashes were returned to India, his remains were returned to India after much lobbying from Gyanis Zelsing. But this was a political stunt. Great edifices were promised to be raised in his memory, but nothing eventuated. What did eventuate was a round of multiple deaths for Udham. His story was cannibalized in the media and through popular literature until an unrecognizable figure emerged. Iqbal Telo lent credence to the holy flacious myth he was a Jat from the Jat clans in his Potajatade. Others argued he was a Qatari. Then came the 1999 atrocious film starring Raj Babur, which cannibalized his story to the degree that we had a love-struck prostitute sooning over him and an Irish firebrand. What a romance indeed. So how can we ensure Udham remains forever relevant? Consider the following. What does he teach us? What lessons can we derive from his life? And how best to implement them in our own? Whatever our answers, it is up to us to flesh out the best possible strategy to keep the memory of our martyrs ever fresh. Thank you for listening to us. Until next time, Vaheguru Ji Ka Khalsa, Vaheguru Ji Ki Fateh.